other, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick, and check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Indeed. And hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and Peter and I will be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Hi, Pete. Hi, everyone. Yeah, and um, we'll be speaking first up with Joseph Bugliese. And Joseph, listeners may recall was with us when we did the special memorial show recently in April um, to honour the anniversary of the passing of Uncle Ray Jackson. And he's done, Joseph has also done some wonderful work with Ray, but also um, helping to build the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. And today with Joseph, we're going to be speaking with about David Dungai, who um, was, who died in, in, in custody and indeed he, he died in prison um, and there was a lot of negligence, alleged negligence from guards and he will be, Joseph will be speaking about an inquest or the inquest and they're putting the information on hold for another year, all the findings but anyway we'll be speaking with him very soon about that inquest. He was actually physically there and he's going to be also giving us um, some background about um, David Dungai as well. Aboriginal death in custody. Then after that, we'll be speaking with Chris Breen, who is an activist from the Refugee Action Collective. And Chris will be speaking about and giving a report back on a Melbourne action which occurred at Jetstar Corporate Office and in regards to some, some terrible goings-on and atrocities where they were deporting refugees and asylum seekers on Qantas. So without any further ado, we're now going to be speaking with Joseph Bugliese from New South Wales. Hello, Joseph. What? Oh. Line five. Not sure what happened there. We'll just uh, had a few technical difficulties there. I'm going to get it for you. There we go. Try again. Hello, Joseph. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, Marissa. And hi, Peter. Hi, Joseph. Take two, eh? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's good to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for being here, Joseph. And wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about what's happening, what happened at the inquest and share with us some background and, and some of your eyewitness views on the David Dungai inquest. Sure. Well, look, I, I attended the inquest uh, during the full 10 days um, for two reasons. One... Uh, uh, as, as a member of ISJA, the Indigenous Social Justice Association, Good. Yep. Um, to show my support to the Dungay family because I well understood that this would be a really trying time for them but didn't quite realise how trying it would be. And we'll speak more about that at the end. Uh, and two, because um, I, I was covering the daily proceedings of the inquest as much as I could because uh, there were a number of areas where I couldn't speak because 
um, the, the, the information was suppressed. So it, I, I'm circumscribed into, in terms of what I can actually say. But I was covering the inquest also for the project that I've mentioned to you before, Deathscapes, which examines both Indigenous deaths in custody and refugee and asylum uh, seeker deaths in custody and at the border because we see the two related as, as I've mentioned to you, to you before we see the two related because we see the settler states exercises violent sovereignty at the border and refugee deaths as basically an attempt to legitimate their theft, their expropri expropriation of Indigenous sovereignty uh, because actually it's Indigenous nations who should decide who comes to this country and, what, uh, and on what terms if you, sure. if, you, if you get my meaning. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's interesting that you've got uh, a refugee activist uh, coming on after me because I see the two issues as, as the Death Escapes Project does, as intimately connected. Yes, I was just having a look at that Death Escapes website. It's, it's excellent. Thank you. Well, look, um, I'm happy to talk about the David Dungay inquest. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to get guidance from you in terms of, of what you would like me to um, unfold. Well, really, we wanted to use the example of David Dungay, and it's it's horrible that we have to have him as an example. I mean, the death could have been prevented if there had been a medical duty of care. But yes. we wanted to explore with you, Joseph, today the, the infrastructural racist violence of the settler state yeah. and the fatal and ongoing effects on Australia's Indigenous people. And... The best way that I, perhaps we could tackle that is to look at the evidence that emerged at the inquest and and try to talk about that um, as, as best you can. Sure. Well, look, I, I think what was really disturbing for me in terms of the evidence that unfolded and stuff that I can talk about because it's on yeah, the public course. record yeah. was yeah. that David um, early on... Um, had uh, what, what we would call early-onset psychosis. So at about 13, 15, he had his first episode, but he wasn't properly diagnosed, even though he was taken into emergency and people could see that um, he was hallucinating, his hearing voices, etc. So I guess what was so disturbing was that at that early stage, he wasn't properly diagnosed, he wasn't given the proper medical care, and it set him off like a lot of people who uh, suffer, you know, serious mental health issues, uh, you know, it drove him to self-medication with illicit substances, etc., etc. Um, and I can talk about that from a personal um, position too, because my son had uh, early onset psychosis at 13, yeah. and it's when when they're not they're not, when they're not properly diagnosed, it really sends them off into a spiral um, where they get ensnared by the criminal justice system. They go into areas where they take substances so they make themselves um, vulnerable to being criminalised because of their undiagnosed mental health issues. So already there was a really fraught background that made David, one, um, as someone with a, you know, what we would say mental disability, mental health issue disability, vulnerable. Overlay that with the racialised dimension, the mm. structural yeah. racism against Indigenous people and their system and the systemic neglect to get their medical issues in particular addressed, whether in the criminal justice system or out of it. And out of it, we can talk about, you know, the Ms. Du case, which I know you marked last week. Yes. Yep. And the way, for example, in which she was suffering grievous um, 
gra- grievous illness. Yeah. And she was actually trundled off to hospital, left in a wheelchair, and people were, you know, the nurses, the medical staff thought she was faking her symptoms, effectively. And, mm-hmm. of course, a few hours later, she Racism. died. So that, that, that crosses genders there. And, you know, what comes into clear focus is the racism which discounts, uh, which delegitimises Indigenous peoples' serious health issues and the way that there is a duty of care that white people, for, for example, get in the health system that uh, Indigenous people don't. So you can see how complex and enlarged the picture is in terms of these breaches of duty of care due to racialised assumptions about Indigenous people. Absolutely. And in fact, last week, Joseph, we paid tribute to Miss Dew and, yep. you know, read some some material and actually spent some quite some time on the show talking about what happened and looking at that inquest that was on public record. Yeah. So what I'm curious to know, because I was, having a, I was having a look at some of the dispatches on the Deathscape website um, where you were there, What are we allowed to have a, have a talk about the coroner's findings? Well, no, the coroner hasn't handed down his findings, Derek Lee hasn't right. handed down his findings. And, and really, this is what was so distressing about coming to the end of 10 days of yep. the coronial inquest. And, and that was that we would have hoped, the, the Dungay yeah. family would have hoped, and Latona in particular, that things had been wrapped up, all the witnesses that presented their testimony, their evidence had been recorded, and so the coroner could go away and write up his findings. In fact, what happened was that they ran out of time. They underestimated the time it would take to bring forth all the witnesses to to give evidence. And uh, at the end of day nine, when they realised they'd run out of time, there was no attempt made to rejig the timetable. Um, And basically they said they were going to suspend the inquest and reconvene it in a year's time. Now, uh, as you can imagine, it was about three in the afternoon when that bombshell dropped, the family just went into uproar at the prospect of having already waited two and a half years for this inquest to come to court and then to be told that they needed to wait another year, that's three and a half years, to actually finalise the evidence and then, of course, it will take months for the coroner to write up um, his findings. Yeah, I just had a look here, actually, Joseph, and it says they're resuming... In June 2019, right? That's right. That's right. And, uh, look, one of the um, Dungay family members basically broke protocol and shouted out in court, well, in another year's time, another black death will have occurred. Yeah. Because none of the recommendations have been framed and, of course, none of the recommendations have been implemented. And there are so many recommendations already as, as as a layperson that I can see urgently need to be taken away from what happened to David in the course of his maltreatment, violent maltreatment uh, in the hands of correctional services there. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I'm happy to speak about some of that. That'd be great. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, look, I mean, when you look at what happened to David and the reason why he died, this is what's incredibly shocking. It hinges on a packet of biscuits. Now, I know that sounds comical and absurd, Mm -hmm. But that's the fact. David um, was a diabetic. He um, often got food from some of the 
vending machine there and will take it back to his cell. Now, the other thing that the family wanted uh, the council assisting the family to put on record was that David would often complain that he wasn't getting enough food uh, in, in the prison system and that he was hungry for other food. So, I mean, that gives you a context as to why he could have been eating the biscuits at that stage. Yeah. Now, the, uh, once David was seen taking the, the, the biscuits into his cell, he got locked up in his cell, and then the, some of the correctional officers basically said, you've got to stop you know, stuffing your face with biscuits because it's going to create a emer- medical emergency. Oh. And David refused to give up the biscuits. So they called in the um, IAT, which is the Immediate Action Team, which is like the riot squad, effectively. Yeah. Now, you would imagine that the logical thing to do would be to go in, if they were going to call this heavy-duty riot squad in, someone hold David while the biscuits were removed from the cell, and that would have been the solution, right? But instead, they went for David... They applied force on him, and because they deemed it uh, a medical emergency, and it was not clear to me whether they had actually consulted at this stage with Justice Health people who were... This is the psychiatric ward, by the way, of Long Bay Hospital that we're talking about. And um, it was not clear to me whether they had um, consulted with Justice Health. Um, but they deemed it a medical emergency and they deemed that he needed to be moved to another cell with uh, observational cameras. This was the reason why they wanted to move him. So basically they go in the cell, instead of removing the biscuits, they you know, go in with full force, apply that force on David and um, hold him down on the bed and basically um, put handcuffs on him um, while, whilst he's in the prone position. Now, the other thing, just to backtrack for a moment, is that they said that they gave David a chance to comply. That was to put his hands through the cell door flat Mm. and have his um, hands handcuffed by the correctional officers. Now, get this. You've got someone who's agitated. You've got someone who's diagnosed with psychosis. He's in a stress state. And so their de-escalation techniques... I found out, consisted of two what they call proclamation orders, which last about 30 seconds to a minute, where they basically say, comply and put your hands through the flat door so we can handcuff him. Right. Now, I'm not sure that someone who's in an agitated and psychotic state will quite process a proclamation and comply with a proclamation. Now, the other interesting thing that came out was that they had the option at that stage before they went in and went for David, to actually call in an Aboriginal liaison officer Mm. who's got culturally appropriate techniques to de-escalate a situation, and that option was never taken up. Isn't that part of the Royal Commission? Well, exactly. And this is, I mean, what Aboriginal people have been saying time and again. Those 339 recommendations, hardly any of them have been implemented. Hardly any followed through in practice and this is another instance yeah because you've got you've got your your accountability to proper health assistance and isn't that part of the royal commission into aboriginal deaths in custody the recommendations Uh, uh, absolutely 
and also, um, you know, if you couldn't get an Aboriginal liaison, liaison officer, you could have got, I, I would have imagined, um, a psychiatric nurse or doctor to come in and, again, de-escalate the uh, situation because they've got professional counselling techniques. Mm. Now, the other thing that really was interesting and quite shocking was that none of these immediate action team officers were briefed beforehand about the really serious medical conditions that David was suffering, including his diabetes, his asthma, and his chronic psychosis. Now, all of these put him at risk to, you know, what came out as the sort of um, alleged reason as to why he died, and that was a positional asphyxia, because he suffocated effectively. And I know you, you and your listeners know that the terrible cries that David... Um, yes called uh, repeatedly whilst he was being forcefully extracted from one cell to the other and that was I can't breathe, I can't breathe and it becomes increasingly desperate because his head is being held in a prone position, he's being flattened down to the floor either on the cell bed or on the cell floor and uh, there's also evidence that he bled at some stage and there was bl blood on the, the cell floor so it was, that gives you an indication of the force that had been applied Absolutely, and in fact, there's quite a a bit of information on public record um, where apparently an endocrinologist was um, was questioned, and he was saying that removing the biscuits would not be a medical emergency. That's exactly right, and so this is where you get um, contradictions coming through, and. Um uh, the endocrinologist and, and plus another doctor came out and said, look, this was not a medical emergency. And um, when David was calling out, I can't breathe, by the way, um, one of the specialists uh, who gave expert evidence came out and said, look, when people are on the verge of positional asphyxia, they can still speak even as they're suffocating. Uh, because the guards were repeatedly saying to David's desperate cries, if I can't breathe, they were saying quite point blank, if you can breathe, if you can talk, you can breathe. How ignorant. And this expert witness, so. yeah, this expert witness said, well, actually, people who are on the verge of dying can still talk, but they're losing their breath. Yeah. And this is what happened with David. Yeah, because he could have, that death could have been prevented, Joseph. There were breaches of duty of care up and down the line. Yeah, even, um, I'm just having a look here, the eating of the biscuits and the possibility that it would raise his blood sugar levels. Yeah. Now, on top of that, when they finally realised, they managed to uh, violently remove him from cell 71 to cell 77, which was the observational cell with the Camerons. Yeah. David then collapsed and they went into a panic and what ensued was really quite shocking to watch, precisely because they didn't offer proper life support practices to David. And again, that expert witness put on record that he noticed that there was an eight-minute hiatus where David should have been given cardiac um, massage, and yeah. he went for eight minutes without cardiac massage. And there were incompetent things, which again were on the public record because they've been reported by the media, where they put a vacuum pump supposedly to sort of suck out vomit from David's mouth because he'd been gagging. Mm -hmm. And they put the pump in with a full cap and 
the cat actually fell out of David's mouth. For God's so sake. You can see the level of in medical incompetence that really just aggravated the situation that led to David's death. For heaven's sake, he didn't even get, like, C CPR, did he? No. No, not... No. Uh, and, and so, I mean, when you watch that part of the film, it, it was really harrowing because, you know, David's going to die, but you see the extent of just incompetent practice unfolding before your eyes. And the um, expert witness, the medical witness, basically said that they should have had a team leader to organise and coordinate the effort, and no one actually took charge. So there was a level of really gross incompetence unfolding. So was there That's a medical team in there, Joseph? What was the last bit? There were... Um, yeah, there, there were nurses. There, there, there were nurses, and then finally a doctor arrived. Oh, and then the ambulance. But by that stage, it, it was just—it was too late. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Joseph. Um, I, when I—I I was just—you just answered my question. I was just about to ask you: Was there a medical team? It doesn't—it doesn't actually sound like there was much of a medical team there. You know? No. No. I mean, it, for, for, from my position, when I watched that video, it looked like a a dreadful shambles. Uh, people were in a panic. They realised that a line had been crossed and then they went into panic mode effectively because they never took seriously David's, David's cries. And if I can say this to you, I do want to put this on record. Sure. And it's, it's a, it was a harrowing... Uh, they actually showed the CCTV and handheld camera footage of uh, the last few minutes of, um, of David's life. Now, it's important forensic footage because it gives graphic testimony of all the malpractices and bre breaches of duty of care that, you know, we've talked about. But it's also incredibly harrowing to have the family watch and re-watch on a daily basis because they're seeing their son and family member die. But what really came through and continues to haunt me really is that as you watch the full arc of this film this footage that goes for about 10 minutes you hear the shift in desperation in the actual voice of david where he pleads then he gets more desperate and cries out and then you can hear really like a, a fear in his voice I think David knew he was dying at that point because he couldn't breathe. Mm. And, and the voice just shifts to a completely different register. And it, I just find it unbelievable that people who were dealing with him at that stage could not hear the level of fear and desperation in David's voice because he knew he was dying. It's, it's despicable, really. And he, so he, he passed and... The inquest is being is resuming next year in 2019. Just getting back to the the medical incompetency here. I'm just having a look here at the dis, yeah. some of the dispatches, and it says you you say in here it also showed Mr. Dungai being incorrectly placed three times in the recovery position, when according to Professor Brown, who was an expert witness, he should have been kept on his back while constant cardiac massage and CPR were administered. Now, I don't mean to sound repetitive here, but I wanted to reiterate to listeners yeah. that that's just not acceptable, is it? 
Absolutely not. I mean, you're effectively blocking the um, respiratory passages when you're putting them in, in that recovery position. But also the most important thing that Dr. Professor Brown stressed was that at that stage, all the attention should have been on cardiac massage. So that should never have stopped. And as I mentioned, every time they put him into recovery position, that would create another hiatus where he wasn't getting that cardiac massage to keep his heart pumping. Yeah. So you can see a cluster of, you know, breaches of duty of care in terms of either uninformed, um, you know, medical practice. They, they should have known this. They didn't. They were in a panic. But the end result is that everything was unco uncoordinated. No one listened to what David was saying because I think there was that racialised dimension where they were dismissing an Aboriginal person's serious cries about their, men, uh, their uh, physical health condition, as they did with Ms. Do, yep. when she was stuck in the wheelchair. And the end result is that this young man dies at, uh, at age 26, effectively. Absolutely. And it's, it's quite surreal, um, Joseph, the way you were explaining it in your dispatches. I don't think you realise how powerful those dispatches are on that website. Are we allowed to actually talk, say the website on air at the end of this or not? Oh, or is that confidential? No, we'd like, we'd like your, we, no, we'd really like your listeners to, to access them. And, and let me say that um, my, the colleagues that I'm working on, Sundarini um, Mpreo and Michelle Bowie, have just completed the uh, dispatches on the Fazal Shengi, um, Chenegi um, inquest that uh, occurred in Perth and finished up last week. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, that, that they can see, you know, because you're going to be having the refugee and asylum seeker activists how these two issues speak to each other Absolutely. across these different these different sites. So yeah, no, we'd, I'd, I'd be more than happy to give them the, the website. Okay, but before okay. we do, what what's interesting here is that you say in the dispatch here at every relevant stopping of the video, Mr. Downing would call to his legal assistant, "Time, please," so that a time signature was recorded of the scene in question, and you said that that resonated with you. Um, long after that court finished and all the, the, the family had left. Can you talk about that very briefly? I, I can. Um, I think there were a number of things that unsettled me, as I said to you before. That, um, that video footage is incredibly important because it graphically shows what happened to David uh, in unvarnished terms. But on the other hand, it was really troubling too the way in which, uh, and I have to put this on record again, the law objectifies the violence that it examines. And for me, the repeated face framing of David, David in his um, death rows, you know, in his agony, became really unsettling in the end because it was like, section, you know, I called it sectioning off the Aboriginal body. And we know that there's a long history of this detached, scientific, forensic, legal dealing with the, uh, the Indigenous body. That goes back a few hundred years in terms of how whites have dealt with Indigenous bodies, both living and dead. Flora and fauna. That resonated for me. Yeah. Exactly. So there's this whole objective, you know, scientific, legal objectifying of someone's trauma, effectively. And that time, please, it became like a haunting call for me because by the end, I'd heard that so many times. I just wanted the video to stop and I just wanted to actually t be given the time to reverse the whole sorry process that I'd been witnessed in terms of what had impacted 
so unjustly on David and David's body. So I actually write about time, please, as a plea to stop the process and reverse and um, dismantle the system of racialised punishment that in particular is focused on Indigenous inmates and Indigenous people. So, And Joseph, thank you so much for coming onto the program. I know that Ray Jackson would be would be very proud that you've come here on, on this show because um, he used to come onto this show all the time and and talk about inquests like this in, in a lot of detail. So thank you very much indeed. And I'm wondering if you could just give us the um, the website, the Deathscape website for listeners. Sure, it's, it, it's quite simple. Your audience members just need to type in Deathscape, D-E-A-T-H-S-C-A-P-E-S dot org, and you'll get to the site. Yeah, it talks about asylum seekers and refugees and a lot of deaths in custody. And in fact, it's very... The, I wanted to tell you that the website's very text-based, very very friendly for people with literacy skills and um, that, that have got haven't got much literacy, or for blind and vision impaired people. So I just wanted to give you that feedback. Oh, look, that's wonderful to know because we were hoping to make it, um, you know, disability friendly for people who have uh, any you know difficulties. So that's really useful feedback. Thank you, Marissa. I'll, I'll give that back to our colleagues because we made an effort with that and put in oh, a lot yeah. of pictures to the people um, as another way of conveying information. So the pictures just aren't illustrative. They're also another way of conveying important information. The pictures, though, it's very important to actually put tags on those pictures to describe what they are so that then the text will be more effective and it'll be it'll be blind-friendly as well. Okay, so uh, a bit more de- uh, detailed description, description. On, the, on the pictures yeah. in terms of text. Yeah, yeah. That's useful. Feedback. That's Thank useful. Because we'll that, take that on board. Yeah, because that way the site will be more accessible. Joseph, we've run out of time. We're going to interview Chris Breen shortly from the Refugee Action Collective. But Joseph, it's been lovely to have you, and and I'm hoping we can have you back for future updates. Thanks so much. Sure. Thank you, Marissa. And thank you, Peter. Always a pleasure. No worries. Yeah. And take care. And thanks for letting us know that you're a member of ISJO because we all wear different hats. Half the time we don't know what hats we're wearing, isn't it? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, no problem at all. All the best, then. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Joseph Bullier here speaking about Aboriginal deaths in custody, in particular focusing on the David Dungai inquest that he's just attended and which has been disgustingly kept on hold and is resuming in 2019 without any findings at all being handed down. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scanty dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that, that nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it.
And you're back with the Doing Time show. And that was Archie Roach called Took the Children Away. It's approximately 4.36 and we're speaking now with Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective about a recent Hello. protest. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the program. Hello, Marissa. Thanks for having me on. Lovely to have you. And Peter and I are both in the studio Hi, today. So, Chris, um, <coughs> could you just start off by giving us some background and giving a little bit of a report back about the recent protest at Qantas and Jester offices and just talk about what's happened? Okay, we had a protest um, four o'clock uh, last Thursday afternoon. Uh, there's probably about 50 of us outside the front of Qantas uh, Jetstar's corporate office, um, and we were calling on Qantas and all airlines to refuse to deport asylum seekers to um, danger. In particular, uh, we're concerned at the moment about uh, the case of uh, Priya Nardes and their family and the case of Huynh, um and her family. Total um, asylum seekers, I believe. part of... Yes. Yeah. Yes, I'll explain the, yep. their cases. Go on, yep. um, Part of the, the rationale um, is that there's the, the um, Home to Bilawila campaign, which is supporting Priya and Nardes, who are two Tamil uh, asylum seekers who lived and worked in the small rural town of Bilawila in Queensland for four years and are now facing deportation to danger in South Africa, in Sri Lanka. Um that campaign put out a petition calling on Qantas uh, and other airlines not to uh, fly deportations. That was signed 13,000 times. Um, the actual petition for Priya and Nardes has been signed 120,000 times, calling on them to stay here and be brought home to Bilawila rather than sent um, away. And also there have been cases of airlines internationally. So uh, Virgin in the United Kingdom... Uh, recently announced that it was going to uh, defy the UK government and not deport people of the Windrush uh, generation, um, although it hasn't made the same announcement here. Um, in the United States, there are four airlines that refuse to fly uh, family separations, and in uh, defying uh, Trump. And in the in Germany, uh, Lufthansa pilots refused 222 times to fly. Uh, 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 asylum seekers to um, danger. So we're saying that Qantas, um, it's time to stand up. Uh, forced deportations are a, a brutal process, often involving physical and chemical restraints. And uh, the deportations might be forced, but the participation in the airlines is, is voluntary. Um, so obviously we're calling on Peter Dutton to use his powers to intervene in these cases, but also on Qantas, uh, you know, the people associate Qantas with holidays, it shouldn't be associated, well, it, it is associated with human rights abuses now as well, yeah. it's going to um, do these things. Absolutely, and in, but they're not complying at this stage? I mean, they're, they're not saying uh, that they... they're, they're not complying. We got a letter back from Jetstar saying that they don't um, fly people internationally, although um, we also want uh, domestic journeys which are in preparation like from Melbourne to Darwin before going overseas we don't want forced journeys there either um, and I should say a little bit about the case of Huynh as well yeah. um, who is a Vietnamese uh, asylum seeker who came here by um, boat 
and she's from the Catholic minority in Vietnam. And Catholic asylum seekers who've been returned by Australia, we know, have been jailed and beaten and harassed, uh, despite assurances uh, that that wouldn't happen. Uh, they are a persecuted minority. And she um, has... She's married uh, here to a uh, uh, her husband, Paul, um, who's here on a 457 visa. They have a child uh, between them who was born in detention in Australia, Isabella. Um, and Huynh, if she is deported to Vietnam, essentially faces indefinite separation from her daughter, um, who has the right to, you know, remain with her um yeah. With the father um, has his visa status here. Um, it's you know horrific case. Um, people are rightly um, you know, uh, outraged about Trump's family separations in the United States, but it's been happening here for quite some time as well. So, just to clarify, Chris. So, having a look at Priya. Mm. So, why? So, are both parents being deported? No, one, uh, one parent's okay. being deported. Uh, no, in the case of um, Priya and Nardes, uh one parent is being deported, but they are a family unit. Um, in And if they were deported, uh, it's likely the whole family would go. They've got two children, Kopika and Therunika, who were also um, born here. So the people, the ones that were born here get deported as well? No. Um, the children would have the visa status of their parents. Okay. So, yes, they would get deported as well. And who? Wh- what's happened now? Have, has anyone been deported yet? Uh, nobody has been deported yet. So, at the moment, Priya and Nardes have their next court case. Uh, it's scheduled for the 27th of August. We're worried that there's nothing to hold them here after that. Um, and I believe that court case is still largely about uh, 75% of um, the uh, prayer's initial interview is um, was, was missing. And so it's about the legal arguments around that. Um, and Huynh uh, has a court case uh, scheduled for October. Um, and again, after that, there is nothing to hold her here. Um, so, you know, uh, we're all urging, uh, you know, people who are listening to, you know, please sign and share the petitions. Um, you put your name down via our Facebook or our website to get in if you want to be alerted about any emergency um, protests around deportations. You know, we are very much hoping it won't come to that. Um, but that's why we're calling on both, uh, you know, Qantas and, and all airlines that, you know, that these that they shouldn't participate in such things. It was only a couple of weeks ago that the United Nations, the UNHCR, Special Rapporteur in Sri Lanka, um, you know, mentioned that the use of torture is routine. Um, went through a list of horrific tortures that I'm, I'm not going to repeat now. Um, and uh, Nardes had links to the Tamil Tigers, as you know, most people living in the north do, and and is at risk if returned. Well, that's right. I mean, there there is the, the that she would be tortured, wouldn't she? Um, it's it's certainly it's certainly a possibility. So with Huin, um, she would then face indefinite separation from her daughter and husband. 
if she was deported? Uh, that is correct, because they would not have uh, any right to go to Vietnam as a matter of course. Um, you know, she would have to get a, you know, try and, I don't know, the, the Vietnam uh, visa system. The Australian one is difficult enough for families to try and get uh, reunification. Uh, mm. So, yes, they would face um, indefinite separation. And where are they at the moment? Uh, uh, Huynh is in the in Broadmeadows, the Mitre um, Immigration Detention Centre, um, along with her daughter, Isabella. Uh, Paul, who works here, goes and visits them every night um, between six and eight after work, and he says that two hours isn't enough, <laughs> and he's not even allowed to bring cooked food, it has to be packaged food. Um, yes, and so, yeah, he's, he's, they're, all, they're both in Melbourne. They're all Priya and Nardes and 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 their children, they're in detention as well. They've been in detention now approaching a year, um, you know, which is cruel. It doesn't have to happen while the court cases take place is the other thing. You know, it, it sounds to me as though the Australian government, including Dutton, really has no regard for families staying together. No, they don't. I mean, the irony is it's the conservative side of politics that bleats the loudest about, you know, family values, but they are the ones who are tearing families apart. And refugee families deserve the same rights as all families. What a mess. Like, you know, some in in detention, some in the community. I mean, well, what's going on here, Chris? Um, it's the, the, the politics of it. Um, you know, the, the Liberals' are coalition government is, you know, uh, trailing in the polls. Um, uh, and they've doubled down, I think, on scapegoating, on racism. We've seen the same sort of stuff around the hysteria about African um, gangs. Um, yeah. I mean, I should say that it didn't work for them in the recent by-elections. Um, <laughs> you know, Dutton, they did all the robocalls about, you know, the people smugglers and boats will come back, yeah. and they lost the by-elections anyway. Yeah. Um, but that, that currently is their strategy. It is a very, very violent infrastructural strategy. Uh, yeah, it is indeed. It's cruel, and we certainly think that the it, it, it must be stopped. Um, in the absence of the, the coalition government agreeing to do that, we do think that the airlines can play a role. Other airlines overseas um, have refused to participate in deportations. Um, I mean, to give you an idea of how horrific deportations can be, there was a a man, uh, Jimmy Mbenga, in uh, the UK who was uh, suffocated to death in 2010 on a British Airways flight when he tried to resist his deportation. What? In Australia, there was a uh, Sudanese asylum seeker uh, who ripped the seat from its um, bolt as he was trying to get out. You know, it's, it's not safe for passengers. It's not safe for asylum seekers. And, and this, hap- this took place on a plane with a plane full of people? Uh, this took place on a plane full of people, yes. Um, there was a lot of legal action over the, the British one of, um, you know, people suffering trauma as a result of witnessing the guy die on the plane. Um, yeah. Well, Which people... Obviously traumatic pe- for the guy himself, but yes. People better start going onto the RAC website and educating themselves and, uh, you know, not please, voting please for Please do. We, we're all volunteers at RAC. We always looking for more people to to get involved we meet this evening at 6 30 at the nurses union building which is 535 elizabeth street please come along our next big forum is going to be on wednesday the 29th of august um also at the nurses union building which is on the case to bring them here about madison naru and we've got aziz 
live from Manus via Skype and Senator Nick McKim, who is the Greens' um, immigration and justice spokesperson. Fantastic. Look, and what's the web the website there? Uh, it is rack-vic.org, R-A-C-vic.org. If you just Google Refugee Action yeah. Collective, you'll find us. And one last question, Chris. In regards to the speakers at, at the action, at the, the rally there, yeah. what who were they? Uh, we had a range of speakers. We had um, Paul, Huynh's husband, who spoke publicly for the first time. Um, you know, it was a very brave thing to do, given their precarious um, position. Uh, you know, first time I think he's spoken in, in public anywhere. Uh, we also had uh, Awali Ahmed, who is a refugee himself, but he was speaking because he's also an activist and he visits MITRE regularly and is a friend of um, Paul and Hawin. And we had um, Brad uh, Coth from the Home to Biloela campaign um, and, again, visits um, Priya and Nardes regularly in detention. And we had uh, Umesh uh, from the Tamil Refugee Council. And I believe there was there were there was an action in Sydney as well. Uh, yes, there was a protest in Sydney as well. Um, and we had we had uh, two apologies. Uh, there was Hong Chong uh, uh, from the Greens, who was the um, uh, I she came. She was a child of um, refugees who oh. came by boat from Vietnam. Uh, she's now a, a Greens MP, and she sent us a, a really good um, speech, even though she couldn't make it on the day. Well. Just to reiterate to listeners that it's really important uh, to sign the petition and to make sure that the airlines have a no deportation policy because at the moment it's not written in policy, is it, Chris? No, it's not. And, I mean, Qantas has flown uh, deportations in the past. There was a passenger, um, Jasmine Pilbrow, who stood up on a flight to prevent the deportation of a, um, a Tamil man and she faced a huge fine. Uh, there was another man who stood up on a flight and tried to stop the deportation and Qantas tried to ban him for life from the airlines. Um, so, you know, I mean, Qantas took a stand over same-sex marriage, the right side of the same-sex marriage debate. Yeah. So they do take stands about things. They, you know, they tr- sometimes try and say, oh, it's all too complicated, you know, it's for government. But in that instance, they took a stand and we're saying that this stand would be equally popular if they, um, if they, if they took such a stand. Absolutely, and in fact, the Do and Time show did interview Jasmine, uh, I believe, last year sometime about that court case. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for coming onto the program and, you know, if people want to get along to that meeting tonight or every Monday night, um, they can go to... Can you give us the address again and the location, please, Chris? Uh, the address is 535 Elizabeth Street. It's uh, ANMF, the Nurses' Union uh, building, uh, ANMF House. At 6.30? Just, yeah, just opposite the Vic Markets, uh, just north of the Vic Markets. Sorry. Thanks yeah. for your time, Chris. At 6.30. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Keep thanks. up the good work. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Chris Breen from the Refugee Action Collective. Um, we've interviewed quite a few activists from that collective, and I find them abs- really excellent um, in terms of looking at, at the issues. So, yeah, we're nearing the end of our show. It's approximately 4.52. I'm just going to go with an announcement and we'll be back soon. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. 
They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course a lot of the Aboriginals having been stolen were put into state care and also others The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day, 223 years ago the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 941983 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. And you're back with the Doing Time show. It's approximately 4.53 and we've got a couple of minutes left. We wanted to thank Joseph Bugliese, um for coming on to the show and he spoke about Aboriginal deaths in custody and David Dungai and we also paid tribute a little bit um, to Miss you as well and that was a continuation of last week and then we heard an interview with Chris Breen from the action the, sorry the refugee action collective and he spoke about the brutal false deportation of asylum seekers and refugees and the importance of um, supporting and trying to convince the airlines to do a deportation free policy um yeah so going to be saying goodbye very soon and we've got we've got a couple of minutes left we're going to be going out with our theme song black fella white fella by the rumpy van pretty soon with beyond zero coming up next and yeah just wanted to quickly mention radiothon again radiothon happened in june and we still haven't met our our, our general target completely and got to do a bit of work but we're getting there and for anybody that, that hasn't um, paid their pledges, please do so now. Um, thanking everybody who has paid. and But it's still not too late to donate. Um, so, yeah, see, see if that can happen. It's approximately 4.54. And rock up, if you can, to the meetings every Monday night at the Refugee Action Collective, for the Refugee Action Collective and that's at Elizabeth Street in the city. Um, and just Google refugees and asylum seekers and you'll find um, the website for that. All right, well, we're out of here very, very soon. Um, we've got Beyond Zero up next and we'll be now um, playing Blackfella, Whitefella. And good, it's goodbye from Marissa. See you, everyone. Have a good night. Yeah, see you good next week. week. Stay strong and take care of each other and stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Doing Time show. Take care. Bye.